We're continuing our study in the Gospel of John. Uh, this teaching series is entitled Believe, and it's called Believe because that's the purpose of the book of John. Uh, he explicitly stated that this has been written down, this account of Christ's life and ministry, so that you might believe. That's what it's all about. Now, here's what we know. There comes a crucial point where we pray in every person's life where they cross the line of faith, where they place their trust in Jesus Christ and become a new creation. But to get to the line where you cross and give your life to Christ, that's not always an easy road. Because oftentimes there can be roadblocks uh, that, that, that can prevent us from believing. And I wanted to think about three common roadblocks that keep people from embracing Christ. And as you think about these three roadblocks, I'd encourage you to think, hey, was that my roadblock? Think of the time before you were a Christian, before you came to Christ. What was keeping you from embracing Christ any sooner than what you did? And maybe it was one of these roadblocks. See if you can identify what yours was. But also there might be uh, some of you here, whether you're watching online or you're here in person, where you haven't crossed the line of faith yet. You're not really sure. You still have a lot of questions. You have a lot of doubts and you're working your way through it. Well, I'd encourage you to do a little self-diagnosis. What is your roadblock? What is your primary roadblock that's keeping you from Christ? But here's the, what I think are the three most common. The intellectual roadblock, the emotional roadblock, roadblock and the religious roadblock. Okay, so there's the three, intellectual, emotional, and religious. The intellectual roadblock, let me give you some examples. It would be the person who says, ah, man, the Bible is full of contradictions and full of inaccuracies scientifically and historically and culturally and geographically. And how can I possibly trust a, a message from a book that's got so many problems, that's got so many errors intellectually? I, I just can't accept that. Or it might be a person who says, people don't come back from the dead. Once you're dead, you're dead. That's as final as final can get. So this whole premise of the gospel that Jesus rose from the dead, I'm sure he was a good man and I believe he died on the cross, but I, I just, I can't accept intellectually that he rose up from the dead. So it's things like that that are intellectual roadblocks for people. Now, emotional roadblocks. Emotional roadblocks are hard. Let me give you a couple of examples. A number of years ago, I was speaking to a group of high school students and I presented the gospel. I presented what it means to be a Christian and what it, what, 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 how you need to respond to God. And afterwards, uh, one of the kids came up to me and he was very agitated. I would say he was angry with me. And, and we started to talk and engage. And to make a long story short, where it came from was his mom had just died a couple of months earlier. This was a high school kid who lost his mom. And he was smart enough to connect the dots because his mom didn't know Christ. His mom wasn't religious at all. And he was like, well, wait, wait a minute. If, if, if the only way you can go to heaven is through Jesus and otherwise you go to hell, and I know my mom, she didn't know Jesus, and therefore you're saying my mom is in hell. And it just destroyed him. 
It just destroyed him. And there was this emotional roadblock. He couldn't embrace that. He couldn't accept what I was saying because the implications of what I was saying was his mom was in hell. Now, I didn't say that, but he connected the dots. And it just devastated him emotionally, and he couldn't embrace the message that I was giving. That's hard, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's some hard stuff right there. Um, another emotional roadblock would be if in your background you have an authority figure, and specifically a religious authority figure, a church authority figure, who abused you, either physically, sexually, or perhaps just abused their authority and, and were just devastating to you or your family or to the people you loved. And so this trusted religious authority figure has betrayed you. And so you have this emotional roadblock towards church and religion and the Bible and God and everything where you, you just don't want anything to do with it because there's so much hurt. There's so much trauma from that. Those would be like emotional roadblocks. Now, religious roadblocks. Here's what a religious roadblock looks like. It's the person who says uh, a couple of different things. One, they, get the, they have the idea that God grades on a curve. And so this is the person who says, I'm fine. Of course I'm going to heaven. I'm not John Wayne Gacy. You know, God, I mean, I got to be in the top 50%, right? I mean, I'm better than most people I know. I'm a really good person. And, and so they, they just, they're self-assured, right? Um, and there's people with religious roadblocks who say, it doesn't really matter what you believe. Don't get nitpicky about exactly what people believe. As long as they believe something and they're sincere, so it can be any religion, it can be any belief system, but just as long as they're a good person and they're sincere, that's good enough, right? Those are examples of religious roadblocks. Now, here's my opinion, and I don't have any data to back this up. This is just simply my opinion. But I think the religious roadblock is the most difficult one to get around. It's the most difficult roadblock to dismantle, and here's why. People who have religious roadblocks don't feel their need for forgiveness. They don't feel their need because they feel like they already got the hookups, right? They're self-assured. Now, we would say they have a false sense of security. They're self-assured when they shouldn't be, right? But people with religious roadblocks, they think they're good. And it's really hard to convince them otherwise. It definitely takes a work of God in their life to get them to that point where they understand their need. Well, today in the story we're going to look at in John chapter 3, we're going to look at a guy who had a massive religious roadblock. And we're going to see how Jesus dismantled that roadblock. He systematically picked it apart and knocked it to the ground so that there was nothing preventing this guy from coming to Christ if he so desired. Okay, But before we look at, at that story in John chapter 3, I, I want to show you some transitional verses um, that take us from one section to the other in what we're studying. Last week, Pastor Chris taught on Jesus cleansing the temple right? You remember that? At Passover, tons of people, and the money changers were there, and Jesus made a whip and overturned tables and, and drove everybody out. And now, here's the transitional statement between that story we looked at last week and what we're going to be looking at now. It's at the end of chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Check it out on the screen. 
Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature for he knew what was in each person's heart. That's really interesting, isn't it? Now, it's obvious that Jesus took advantage of the huge crowds at the Passover in Jerusalem, and he began his public teaching ministry, and he performed miracles. Now, what exactly he did by way of miracles isn't specifically recorded, so we don't know exactly what he did, but it obviously wowed people. It attracted a lot of attention, and the authority and the wisdom of his teaching started to already gather crowds, right? Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem, many began to trust in him. Now, do you guys, do you get the wordplay here? There's wordplay here that I think is ironic. I think it's really funny. The gist of it is people were trusting in Jesus, but Jesus didn't trust in them. That's funny stuff, right? That these people were trusting in Jesus, but Jesus didn't trust in them. Now, trust, as it's used there, that many began to trust in him, it's trust with like quotation marks around it, right? Because this wasn't true faith. This wasn't like people who were actually following him and obedient to him. These were people who were trusting, like they were impressed with the miracles. They liked the miracles. They liked the show Jesus was putting on. So they were becoming like groupies, right? They weren't devotees. They weren't in love with him. They weren't committing their life to obey him and follow him, but they were digging him. I mean, they were enjoying him. They were being entertained by him. And so in that sense, they were trusting him, but it says Jesus wasn't getting all excited about it. Jesus wasn't like, oh, look at all the people. They love me. Oh, look at all the people. They're digging me. Jesus wasn't impressed at all. Why? Because he knows human nature. He knows how fickle people are, right? And once the going got tough, the crowds would dissipate like that. And so Jesus understands human nature. He knows what's in each person's heart. Now that's the transition. So now what we're going to see is an illustration of how well Jesus knows a person's heart. And John highlights in the, in what we're going to see is two conversations Jesus had. One was with a man named Nicodemus, and the other is with a nameless woman that we commonly call the woman at the well or the Samaritan woman. And both these conversations that are recorded are going to show us how well Jesus knows the human heart and how vastly different he engaged these two people because they are so different. So um, by way of contrast, the woman at the well, we're going to learn about her in John chapter 4, um, she was um, a Samaritan woman. She was completely uneducated. She had no influence in society. She was powerless as a woman living in a patriarchal society. Uh, she just, you know, she just wasn't a player. And in fact, she was considered immoral. She had gone through many marriages. She had a lot of relational issues. Uh, her life was kind of a mess in that sense. And, and she was despised by the people around her because of her immorality, but also because she was a Samaritan. A Samaritans in the days of Jesus were the half-breeds of society. They were a race of people that were half-Jewish, half-Gentile. So as a result, 
Jews rejected them because they were half Gentile. The Gentiles rejected them because they were half Jewish. And so like if there was a caste system in this society, the Samaritans were the lowest of the low. And in fact, a good God-fearing Jew would go out of his way to not have to travel through Samaria because the Samaritans were so despised. So this was a woman in a patriarchal society, a Samaritan woman who just, her life was kind of a mess, right? And, and no influence, no education. So that's her, right? And, and we're going to learn in a couple of weeks how Jesus engaged her. Compared to Nicodemus, they couldn't have been more different. Nicodemus was a man. He was from a rich, well-respected family. He was extremely well-educated. He was powerful and influential, highly moral, highly respected. And we know that he was a Pharisee. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that the Pharisees were the primary antagonists all throughout Jesus's ministry. They were constantly hassling him, constantly challenging him. And the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. And the word Pharisee means separatist, a separatist. And they were separatists in that they were trying to protect Judaism from Greek influence. There was a form of Judaism that was called Hellenistic Judaism, and it was Judaism that had been infiltrated and influenced by Greek language, Greek culture, Greek customs, and they were worried that, that Judaism was being compromised, that it was being diluted by this Greek culture, and so the Pharisees rose up to keep Judaism pure. They were like, ultra-nationalists, you know, and, and, and they, they wanted to keep Judaism pure and fight against Greek culture. But what happened shortly over time is that the, the Pharisees devolved into this really legalistic body where they added a bunch of man-made rules to what God had already said and made, made it really difficult to come to God and put heavy burdens on people uh, in, in order to supposedly connect with God. And he was one of the Pharisees. But Nicodemus wasn't just a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, if you've never heard that phrase before, this was a ruling body in the time of Christ. And the Sanhedrin were the upper echelon of the Pharisees. And probably the only like similar comparison we might have in our culture would be the United States Supreme Court. The Sanhedrin were the Supreme Court of Israel. They were the Supreme Court of the Israelites. And so Nicodemus was as powerful and as influential as you can possibly get. And so think about that as we look at this context of the story we're about to read. Now, you're going to notice that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Now, we can speculate, why did he specifically come to Jesus at night? Some people say, well, it's probably because Jesus attracted so many crowds, the only way Nicodemus could have a private sit-down with Jesus was late at night after everybody went home and went to bed. That's a possibility. That could be part of it. But more likely, the reason why Nicodemus waited till night is because he didn't want the publicity. He didn't want it to be publicly known that he as a Sanhedrin, as a Pharisee, was engaging with this young, unknown rabbi. He, he didn't want that to be public knowledge. And so he came to Jesus that night, and we pick it up there. And so we're going to read John 3. It's a little bit lengthy of a passage of Scripture, but I hope you'll stay with me. It's worth our time to read the whole story, and I think you'll find it fascinating. So I'd invite you now to please stand at the reading of God's Word. 
John 3. Now there was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How, how can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can produce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind, but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going. So you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. How are these things possible, Nicodemus asked. Jesus replied, you are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? I assure you, we tell you about what we have seen and heard, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned but the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man, was Jesus is referring to himself. That was his favorite title that he would use to refer to himself. But the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but, God, but people loved the darkness more than the light for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so that others can see that they are doing what God wants. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you'd bring to each one of us clarity in regards to where we stand with you. Father, we thank you that this conversation was recorded for all time, that we might benefit and learn from it. And so, Father, we ask your Holy Spirit would be our teacher right now as we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So here's how I want to approach this conversation. I want us to focus in on the words of Nicodemus first off. And I want you to see... There's 46 words that Nicodemus speaks that are recorded here. You can count them if you want. There's 46 words. And it's the only place in Scripture they're recorded. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't even mention Nicodemus. John is the only one who does. And there's no other words of his recorded except what we read right here, these 46 words. So I want to see what this religious roadblocked spiritual seeker had to say and then how Jesus responded to him, okay? Starts out with these words. He says, Rabbi, 
We all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. As a Pharisee, he was in Jerusalem during Passover. He had watched Jesus' miracles. He had listened to his teaching, and he was impressed. And he knew Jesus was different. And so his curiosity was piqued. He realizes Jesus was somebody special. And I love the fact that Jesus answers Nicodemus' question before he even asks it. But here's, I think, why Nicodemus was approaching Jesus. And I think this was the question he had in mind. He was saying, Jesus, what's in the secret sauce? What's the missing ingredient? You know things I don't, and I thought I knew a lot. You seem to have a connection with God that I don't feel. I don't have. Who are you? What is going on? And what advice can you give me? I have a heart for God. I desperately want to please God. And so what's in the secret sauce? What's the missing ingredient? God, Jesus, tell me what's the one thing I need to do? I think that's what Nicodemus is is going to be asking here. But Jesus interrupts him. And Jesus responds with this. Jesus responds by simply saying, Nicodemus, It's not about trying harder. He said, it's not about trying harder. See, whereas Nicodemus was expecting Jesus to say, hey, focus on this passage of scripture and memorize it and really understand what it says, or hey, do this meditation technique or pray the words in this kind of prayer or in worship, do this or do that. He was looking for advice. How can I be better? How can I do more to where I have the kind of connection with God that you have, Jesus? And Jesus said, it's not about trying harder. It's not about trying harder. In fact, what Jesus said is, you need to be born again. You need a life mulligan. (laughs) That that you have to have a complete do-over, a complete start-over. No amount of effort is going to get you what you are looking for. I see that hurts. Because religious people, they're anticipating it's all about their effort that it's all about their sincerity. As long as I'm sincere, as long as I'm doing my best, I'll be okay. And Jesus blows them away by saying, no, that's not true. That's not what it's about. The situation is so dire that you need a complete do-over. You need to be born again. Second set of words from Nicodemus. Then Nicodemus responds, what do you mean? What do you mean? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Now, it would be absurd for us to think that uh, Nicodemus was taking Jesus literally here. Nicodemus isn't responding literally. He understood Jesus was speaking in metaphor, okay? And, 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 And so the gist of what Nicodemus is saying here is he's saying, Jesus, here's my problem. I don't know what to do because I'm too old to change. My life pattern has been set. I've been a Pharisee for years. I've had this belief system for years. I've been working hard, trusting in myself my entire life. I'm too old to change in light of this. Am I not hopeless? Jesus, am I not hopeless? Change is beyond me. It's too late for me. And so Jesus' response in verses 5 through 7 He says to Nicodemus, you must receive life from God. It's not about you doing more. It's not about you earning it. But what you need 
You must receive life from God. And so it's not about you, Nicodemus, which means there's always hope. Because it's not about you, but it's about God. It's never too late. You can always teach an old dog new tricks. And I would say to you, for those of you who've grown up in the church, for those of you who are on the dark side of 50, right? You're on the other side there. What I want to say to you is this. It's not too late. It's not too late. If it wasn't too late for Nicodemus, it's not too late for you. And Jesus goes on to say, hey, there's two kinds of birth. There's human birth, physical birth. That's, that's, uh, that's something God created, and humans can do that on their own, right? But spiritual birth, like coming alive to God, coming alive in forgiveness and knowing heaven is your home, that spiritual birth, humans can't pull that off. That's not within human capability to produce spiritual birth. The only way spiritual birth happens is through the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's an act of God. God does that for you. You don't do that for yourself. And he says, you must be born, Jesus said, you must be born of the water and spirit. Now, that's a curious phrase, and that's caused a lot of debate down through the centuries. What exactly does it mean by water? Because Jesus says you must be born of water and the Spirit. Leading theories on what water means. Some people think water means baptism, that you must be born of the Holy Spirit and you need to be baptized to be saved. And yet that seems to contradict a lot of other passages of Scripture that talk about it's simply faith. It's not baptism. Baptism is proof of faith. It's not how you get saved, right? So it's probably not baptism. Others say, well, that water is referring to human birth. Like, you know, like when a woman's water breaks and she goes into labor, it's talking about that water. So it's talking about physical birth. And in other words, Jesus said, you got to be born once physically by water. And then, then once you're born physically, then you can be born spiritually by the Holy Spirit. Ancient people in the time of Jesus didn't really talk about birth in the sense of water breaking, and they didn't have that kind of understanding or knowledge. They didn't view it in that way. So highly unlikely Jesus was referring to a physical birth when he spoke of water. So what was he referring to? I'm glad you asked. Here's what I think he was referring to, okay? When Jesus spoke about you need to be born of water and the Spirit, he was talking about the act of God where we are cleansed. The act of God where we are cleansed. And I think it wouldn't surprise me, Jesus specifically had in mind the scripture we find in Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36 is a wonderful passage of scripture. Ezekiel is a book you probably don't read too often, but this is some gold right here. Check it out. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. That's the water. It's, it's the metaphor for God's sprinkling in our life, God's cleansing in our life, God giving us a new life. That's what I think is being referred to here. It's the act of God where we are cleansed. And I love Ezekiel. I love this because you notice how that's all God initiated. It's not about you do this, you do this, you do that. It's God does, God gives, God will, God is. It's all about God initiating here. And that's the teaching of the New Testament as well. Um, and it's seen in the New Testament. Let me, let me give you one good example. Titus 3 verse 5, it says, he saved us 
not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. And here it is, the water metaphor. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is resoundingly telling Nicodemus that he is not hopeless because it's not up to him. Last words of Nicodemus. Recorded right here, Nicodemus simply says to Jesus, how are these things possible? How are these things possible? In other words, how do I get this in my life? How do, it, do, do I get this fulfilled in my life? I hear what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. How do I receive this for myself? And Jesus' response is, Nicodemus, it's all about belief. It's all about faith. It's all about trust. It's right there, man. It's all about belief. And then Jesus takes Nicodemus to answer his question, to illustrate his his answer. Uh, Jesus takes Nicodemus to a familiar Old Testament story. Now, Nicodemus is a Pharisee, was an expert in the Old Testament. He probably had most, if not all, of the Old Testament memorized. And so he knew all the Old Testament stories. So to help him connect and understand what he was saying, he took Nicodemus to a story that's recorded in Numbers chapter 21. And in Numbers chapter 21, the Israelites once again had been disobedient and rebellious to God. And so God, to judge them, had sent poisonous snakes into their camp. And thousands of people were dying being bit by these poisonous snakes. And so they repented, they turned to God, they were begging God to deliver them, to heal them, to take the snakes away. And so God instructed Moses to fashion a bronze serpent and wrap it on a pole and put the pole up in the air. You know that symbol? You still see that symbol today in doctor's offices and different medical organizations and hospitals and things, that, that snake, that, that's, that's from Numbers chapter 21. It's, it's the symbol of healing. It's the symbol of healing. And so in Numbers 21, when Moses put that bronze serpent on the pole and lifted it up, all the Israelites had to do was look at it and they were healed. That's all they had to do, just look at it and they would be healed. And so Jesus compares himself to what happened in Numbers 21 and says, I'm going to be lifted up just like that bronze serpent, but I'm going to be lifted up on the cross. And when I'm on the cross, anyone who looks to me will be healed. Anyone who looks to me will be cleansed. All they got to do is believe. All they got to do is look. And that illustrated the idea of faith. And then what we have is one of the most clear and famous summaries of the gospel in the entire Bible. It's the one verse that almost everybody knows. If a person only has one Bible verse memorized, it's probably this one, right? John 3.16. I put it up on the screen right now. Look at that. For God, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. When I was led to faith in Christ as a child, I remember the person who was talking to me, she inserted my name in this verse. And she said, for this is how God loved David. That he gave his one and only son so that if David would believe in him, he will not perish, but have eternal life. And friends, I would invite you to personalize that and insert your own name there. 
Because God loves you. God has provided for you. For God so loved the world, he's not against you, he's for you, that he gave his only son, that everyone who believes in him will not perish. See, everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And so I had meant to stop at the ATM this morning for for my illustration this morning to get a couple of $20 bills, and I forgot. So I was like, oh man, I hope I got some cash, because normally I don't have any cash. I have two $1 bills. How sad is that? How sad is that? But I have two $1 bills, so this will work. It's just not as flashy as having a 20 or a 50 like rich people, okay? So here it is. For God so loved the world that he gave. That if Aaron would believe in him, he would not perish but have everlasting life. Does that make sense? And so, for God so loved Aaron that he gave his only son, that if Aaron would believe in him, he wouldn't... There you go, Aaron! There you go, buddy! Yeah! Nice job, Aaron! Okay. Okay. I need that back. Yes. Yeah, right. This has got to last me another week, so thank you. I, I, I needed that back. Okay. Do you get it? Do you understand what faith is by that? That faith isn't just knowing something's being presented to you, something's available to you. Faith is taking it for yourself, taking it out of the hand of God. You didn't earn it. He didn't earn it. He didn't get to keep it either, but he didn't, he, he didn't earn it. He just he heard about it and he took it. And folks, that's salvation right there. That's what Christ has done for us. And so I want to encourage you, especially if you're like Nicodemus and you have a religious roadblock, to understand it's not about you, it's about God. But the good news is God's taking care of everything. You just need to receive it by faith. You need to take it out of his hand. I leave you with this final thought, okay? That when you think about forgiveness, eternal life, and connection with God, salvation. Salvation is something you receive, not something you achieve. That's such an important thing to understand and know that it's not about achieving, it's about simply receiving this gift from God. I'd encourage you to embrace Christ, that if you haven't trusted in him to do so right now, that whatever roadblocks are in your way, um, Talk to somebody. If you have a roadblock, a persistent roadblock, don't let it just stay there indefinitely, but talk to someone. Get help. Learn how to dismantle that roadblock so that you can come to faith. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this conversation being saved for us. Uh, God, thank you for true spiritual seekers like Nicodemus. And Lord, we thank you that we have a Savior who is an expert at human nature and understands where we're coming from and understands our hangups. And Lord, he works with us. He talks us through it. He helps us to understand it's not about us. It's all about you and your grace and your love. And so Lord, we thank you for this story. I pray that as a result, there'd be many who will have placed their faith in you, even this morning, even now. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.